Welcome to That's Podcasting, a movie musical podcast. I'm Cody Pasby. And I'm Paul Ponte. And today we will be continuing our look at rock and roll musicals. Last week we discussed a movie that was not rock and roll. So let's uh, really get into it this week and talk about one of the, I guess, sort of seminal rock and roll musical, rock and roll opera, rock operas, if you will, maybe the first of its kind, and that would be The Who's Tommy, the film version released in 1975. The album came out in 1969, uh, was considered maybe the first of its kind, although we'll get a little bit into that. But, uh, Paul, I think we'll just start off here. Uh, Where are you on The Who? Do you consider yourself, for lack of a better word, a Whovian? Oh, dear Lord. Uh, I'm a pretty big fan of The Who. I like their music. I've never been, like, obsessed with it. I don't, I don't, you know what I mean? I'm mostly about the hits. And uh, I listened to this whole album before because I'm a big uh, concept album guy. I love concept albums of any kind. So I, I tend to gravitate towards the, this kind of album more than uh, the other ones. But I know, you know, all the hits. Uh, I would say that, when I was younger, I, my, I mean, I got raised on like the Beatles and a lot of that sort of style into the 70s and 80s, sort of the Beatles knockoffs as well. That was a lot of the music played in my house. But and then I got into like a classic rock phase, I think, when I was maybe junior high into high school, started listening to a lot of Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, the the who's who of, of that other than the who, which I didn't really get into until college. And I went, what did I do? Why did I miss this? Why did I miss this mm-hmm. boat? Because all I knew of them were like, you know, like you said, the hits, the My Generation, Bob O'Reilly, uh, great songs. But then like really digging into them and realizing uh, what they were, especially being a guy who was in theater uh, and, and loved musicals and realizing, oh, shit, like they are super theatrical, obviously Tommy, but then even more so, I think their maybe their best work, Quadrophenia, which is I would rank that as one of my all time favorite albums. Yeah, uh, they are. I I feel like for as big as this band is, I also feel like they don't quite ever get the due they deserve compared to uh, a lot of the same a, a lot of their contemporaries. So. I'm glad we're talking about them. They're a really cool band. Pete Townsend is is uh, is just a genius musically. Uh, so let's get a little bit in to the background of Tommy. And as far back as 1966, the Who's creative leader, the aforementioned Pete Townsend, their lead guitarist, much like the rest of the rest of the rock and roll world, a lot of his contemporaries, he was eager to break away from the record industry's standard format of success. Of course, maybe what a year later, Sgt. Pepper comes out, Pet Sounds comes out. There's a, a lot of changes going on for how records are made, what the idea of an album is, concept albums. So, uh, thanks to the encouragement of his co-manager Kit Lambert, Townsend started to include what he called rock operas, mini rock operas on the next couple of records that The Who made. Uh, Although, uh, if any of the living members of the band The Pretty Things are listening, they might take exception to the fact that I am calling Pete Townsend sort of the godfather of rock operas, because their album, SF Sorrow, is cited as the first in the rock opera genre, and 
it did precede Tommy by a year. Pete Townsend has claimed that he has in no way, he was in no way, inspired by that album. Uh, the Pretty Things as a band have been on record stating otherwise. Nonetheless, Tommy represents the biggest leap forward for the subgenre, both commercially and critically. It was released May 23rd of 1969. The album was inspired by the work of Mahir Baba, an Indian spiritualist who took a vow of silence from 1925 until his death in 1969, and he claimed that he was an avatar, a.k.a. a god in human form, not a seven-foot-tall blue alien. I just want to chime in on these two um, ninnies arguing over who came up with a concept album. <laughs> Guys. Rock, rock opera, specifically. Yeah. Guys, how long have musicals been a thing? Exactly. I mean, honestly. Exactly. It, I mean, come on. I mean, I guess, yeah. Oh, but we're doing it in album form, and it's a rock thing. Okay, sure. Fine. Yeah, well, I'm the first person to make an alternative one. Well, I'm the first person to make a psychedelic one. Okay, how many pathways are we going to go through before we just say, like, yeah, you made a bunch of songs that tell a story, a.k.a what a musical does right exactly <laughs> if anybody should be mad it's you know like the estates of gilbert and sullivan uh that maybe should be saying um no we actually made that you know the idea of a musical and then if you really want to go further back you could go to the people who created uh operas to uh who wanted to create that genre uh but still exactly. you know and, and then even the concept of a concept album is something that you know goes far back as what maybe the I don't know, late early sixties, maybe even late fifties. Probably, probably early sixties is when you're starting to get the first sort of uh, ideas of a concept album. And then, of course, you know, sixty-seven, Sgt. Pepper comes out, and that's one of the seminal concept. The Lonely albums. Hearts Club Band. Yes, those the okay. the aforementioned the Lonely Hearts Club Band, uh, okay. the one and only Billy Shears. You know, who is actually the uh, plastic surgery version of the man that uh, Paul McCartney is today. Uh, anyway, well, we're going to get into that later on in the month. But, uh, Paul, if you ever uh, are want to really spook yourself at 3 in the morning, I highly recommend watching a YouTube video uh, about why definitely, for sure, the man who Paul McCartney is today is actually a man named Billy Shears, who they basically uh, cut up into pieces and did a ton of facial reconstruction surgery to make him look like Paul McCartney. Well, Paul's dead, man. Yeah, we all know that. That's, uh, that's, that's a fact. Not the one I'm talking to right now. That's that would not be. Or is he? Yeah, that's right. Play it backwards. Maybe you'll hear a different message. Exactly. So, despite representing a, a pretty major departure for the Who, uh, Tommy was a commercial and critical success. Over the next five years, the album would be adapted into a ballet by the Legrand, excuse me, the Legrand's Ballet Canadians in Montreal in 1970. It would be performed by the Seattle Opera. In 1971, it actually featured Bette Midler as Mrs. Walker, known as Nora in the film, and the Acid Queen. But the most famous alternative rendition prior to the film's release was the 1972 London Symphony Orchestra concert featuring Steve Winwood, Rod Stewart, Ringo Starr, and Peter Sellers. Uh, the cast recording of the performance was also released to great success. That actually features Richard Harris instead of Peter Sellers uh, in the role of the Doctor. The original album and the London Symphony Orchestra album combined sold 10 million 
copies. So it was only inevitable that Hollywood would come a knockin'. Music and theater producer Robert Stigwood bought the rights to adapt Tommy to the big screen. Stigwood had some fantastic success as a manager of the 60s rock band Cream. Later on, he was the manager of the Bee Gees, who, of course, I think he was producer of Saturday Night Fever, which really vaulted the Bee Gees to huge success after almost a decade of trying to get a foothold into pop music. Uh, But in the early 70s, he had hit a rough patch and switched to theater and film productions. He produced Broadway shows such as Jesus Christ Superstar and its film adaptation, as well as Hair. Uh, Eventually, he would produce mega-hit musicals like Grease and Evita. Uh, Stigwood handpicked avant-garde director Ken Russell to direct the film adaptation. Although, if the studio had their way, they would have picked an up-and-coming director who uh, directed a very interesting sci-fi film a couple years prior, a man by the name of George Lucas. Uh, instead, he decided to write and direct his next film, American Graffiti. Uh, Russell apparently hated rock and roll music, didn't like the music at all. Okay. This is still that era where, like, even uh, Frank Sinatra does, like, that great rendition of something, the Beatles something. And yet, he anytime he would perform it live, he always prefaces it with, I don't like rock and roll music, but this is a good one. Like, all right, buddy. <laughs> but he agreed to do the movie since the idea of telling a story about a messiah-like character intrigued him. Russell was actually nominated for Best Director at the Academy Awards just a few years prior for 1969's Women in Love. Uh, but he had created a reputation for himself as a highly experimental director whose films ran the gamut between strokes of genius and utterly insane. Basically, this is my kind of guy. Tommy was the highest profile project of his career at this point. It would be the most commercially friendly movie he ever made, which (laughs) this is the most commercial friendly movie ever made. Tells you everything you need to know about the rest of his filmography. What, what, what other kind of movies did he do? He did a lot of uh, experimental avant-garde stuff. He also did a ton of movies. I don't know if it was just a subject he was interested in or if he was like going for some grand project throughout his career. He did a bunch of adaptation. He did a bunch of biopics about classical composers. That was his other bread and butter. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, mostly, mostly international films, European films, uh, mostly worked in the U.K., uh, that same year, by the way, uh, he released what was probably an even stranger collaboration between him and Who frontman Roger Daltrey. Uh, was, this movie was released in 1975. That would be the Franz Liszt biopic, Listomania. That is the actual name of the movie. Oh, yeah, that's what the, the band Phoenix got the song name from. There you go. Listomania, yeah. which uh, about Listomania. we should watch that. I don't know. Would that be a? I've never seen it. I would imagine. I hope it's a it's a musical because I want to talk about a movie about Franz Liszt named Listomania. Count me it's... in, especially after watching this movie. I'm I'm kind of in for anything this guy does. This is such a bizarre cavalcade of uh, wonderful imagery and bizarre performances and over the top, just just madness going on. Yeah, Listomania was a thing in the 1800s. That was a term about how people were obsessed with with lists. What's his name? Franz Liszt. Franz Liszt. Yeah. That's so weird that, that's a, that that was actually what they called it in that era because it sounds so modern to say something O-mania. That's, wow. That's very, it, I, I am uh, genuinely taken aback 
by how Listomania is listed as a musical film. Locked in. We're good. Good enough for me. And it came out the same year. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Daltrey wow. really liked, or, or excuse me, Ken Russell really liked Roger Daltrey. Like, thought he was going to be a star. Uh, and apparently, uh, when he was cast as Tommy, that was Ken Russell requested Roger Daltrey play the part of Tommy, even though Daltrey and his management uh, did not want him to be the star of the movie. They specifically asked that he not be a star in the movie. He could sing some songs. He'll appear with The Who, but he's not an actor. He doesn't want to be in the movie. But mm. Ken Russell demanded that that would be the case. He also wrote the film. Uh, he wrote the screenplay for the movie after tossing out several drafts that he felt missed the point. Uh, he suggested story changes to Pete Townsend. Uh, Townsend was a fan of what he came up with, so he actually wrote new songs and new material for the film version. The new songs were Bernie's Holiday Camp, Mother and Son, Champagne, and the sort of connector song TV studio. Uh, Townsend also reworked lyrics and other parts of songs like Pinball Wizard, We're Not Gonna Take It, and Do You Think It's All Right. Uh, as I mentioned, Roger Daltrey is the lead in this movie. He is the titular Tommy, and when you look at the people either in this movie or the people who are about to be cast in this movie, maybe you realize why he and his management team maybe didn't want him to be front and center because it was a veritable who's who of 70s pop culture. The film already stars some of the biggest names of the era. That includes Anne Margaret, Oliver Reed, Tina Turner, Elton John, Jack Nicholson, and Eric Clapton. But what could have been is somehow even wilder than the end result. Uh, I think we talked about right before we started the podcast. David Bowie was indeed up for a role in this movie, as well as Mick Jagger. Both were rumored to be the first choices to play the Acid Queen. Mm, which Okay. Yeah. So it, could, it was they were going in a completely different direction than what they ended up going with. Yeah, they wanted to go like an andro androgynous, like yes. acid. Yeah, okay, I get it. Yes. Especially you can see Bowie doing it. Oh yeah, Bowie would have been uh, actually an awesome pick, and he would. Yeah, have I mentioned. Killed I mentioned to you, I thought Bowie was in line for the Jack Nicholson part because I feel like Jack Nicholson is just doing a David Bowie impression in this, but like to the point where like the the low notes are very like like he's doing an accent, and I'm like, oh yes, what? I'm like, what what accent is that, Jack? Because that ain't your accent. And then in the high notes, he's doing the very uh, high, shrill David Bowie yell. And I'm like, this is, wow, okay. Uh, I love some of the little tidbits of Jack Nicholson, who, yeah, again, he has such a small role in this movie. But some of the best little tidbits about the making of this movie. Uh, apparently, he said about, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but said about working with Ken Russell. He's like, you know, I like some of his movies, and I think some of them are crap, but that's what made me want to work with them. Like, oh, want to see what makes him tick, you know? Uh, also said he got his favorite bit of direction from Ken Russell when he was told, just look right into the camera and just eat it up. Just look like you just act like you're the most handsome man in the world. You see it in that scene where he's like staring down Anne Margaret's character, uh, giving her the, like the eyebrow raise and everything. It's great. Some of the other names, though, like I mentioned, David Bowie, Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger was actually going to be in this movie on the condition that three of his own original songs also be included in the movie. So they said, hard pass, Mick. Not going to happen. This is the Who's movie. This is not the Rolling Stones movie. Mm. The other one that has a just a huge laundry list of who could have been. 
would be the Pinball Wizard, of course. Rod Stewart, who did sing Pinball Wizard uh, in the London Symphony Orchestra version. Uh, David Essex. And my favorite one, Pete Townsend's personal choice, Tiny Tim. We're all candidates to play the Pinball Wizard. Very nice. The studio, uh, Pete Townsend apparently fought hard for Tiny Tim. Studio in no fucking way. <laughs> you kidding me? Apparently he was also, uh, I read something else. I, I, I couldn't verify it. I did see some things that he was also rumored for the Acid Queen as well. Now that's... They really wanted Tiny Tim in this thing. Yeah. And honestly, he would have fit perfectly. Yeah, but it was... Oh, you know who he could have been? He could have been Uncle Ernie. I could see that, yeah. Yeah, Uncle Ernie. Or, or even Cousin Kevin. Either one of them. He would have... He could have done that well. Pinball Wizard, you can't have him be the center... The, the Literally the, the biggest, most popular song in the movie. Cannot be Tiny Tim and his little ukulele <laughs> singing to everyone. He's a pinball wizard. No one wants that. Also, Stevie Wonder tried to talk uh, himself into the movie. He apparently called Pete Townsend on the phone and said, I've got to sing Pinball Wizard. That's got to be me. Which, first of all, I want to hear a version of Pinball Wizard by Stevie Wonder. I bet it's awesome. But Pete Townsend said no because he felt um, the whole point is that he's deaf, dumb, and blind. And he's this Pinball Wizard. Wouldn't it be weird if the other guy was also blind? Yeah. Which I guess, apparently Stevie Wonder was not happy about that. <laughs> you could have gotten, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think you could have gotten away with it. Like, who cares? Like, you just wear sunglasses. That's how you could have gotten away with it. But I think everybody knows Stevie Wonder so well that you can't disconnect the two. I guess that's right. Yeah. Elton John, who eventually took the role, initially turned it down. He was convinced for reasons that we will get into a little bit later. And finally, Barbara Streisand was rumored to be in the film. There's no word of what role she would have taken. But pretty clear, she's a perfect fit to play Tommy's mother, and she would have been great. Speaking of those parents, uh, Daltrey is only three years younger than his movie mother, Anne Margaret, four years younger than his movie stepfather, Oliver Reed, and three months older than his actual father in the film, Robert Powell. <laughs> They're not really going for an age thing there, clearly. Yeah. Although Roger Daltrey does look fairly young. Uh, compared. He does. He yeah, does he actually does. look younger than the two of them. The film was the first and only movie to ever use quintaphonic sound, an attempt to bring the new quadraphonic hi-fi speaker sound that was becoming popular at home to theaters. The creator of it, John Mosley, used one of these systems to record front left, front right, back left, and back right channels uh, on the left and right tracks of a four-track magnetic strip print of a cinemascope type. If you've fallen asleep listening to me dig into, uh, you know, sound crap or uh you know that's the reason no one took t this is the reason's the only time they ever used it because everybody else went who cares <laughs> just it sounds fine the way it is uh although i think dolby 5.1 surround sound made its debut in listomania later in the year the other ken russell roger daltrey movie which that has now become the industry standard uh, yeah there was a lot of things that were comparing this to uh fanta sound which was a very similar sound setup that was developed by Walt Disney for Fantasia, uh, which also was going to require movie theaters to build a bunch of equipment that they were going to use once and then probably just toss in the trash. So didn't happen, didn't take. Uh, but despite that, the movie took. The film was a rousing success. It debuted at number one at the box office. Something, by the way, that none of the band's singles or albums could achieve on the U.S. Billboard charts. 
I wow. could not believe when I read the Who do not have a single number one single in America and not even a number one album. That's crazy. The highest they peaked was uh, with Tommy, I think. at No, Tommy was number four. I think Quadrophenia was number two. And the soundtrack to Tommy was number two. That's it. Wow. Yeah. A little surprised. It's like the uh, the Aerosmith, the only number one song they had was the one from Armageddon, and it's not even written by them. Exactly. It's exactly it. It's crazy if you think about it. It's like, yeah. oh, Walk This Way? No. Not Dream On. Like, yeah, none? No? Not, okay. sweet, not Sweet Emotion. And, like, and when you mention this, like Bob O'Reilly? No. Right. It's you know the who have grown in I, I I think notoriety and in just general pop culture knowledge uh, thanks to CSI really <laughs> and I'm not even exaggerating when I say that it's true I know like would we know those songs at, would they be as etched in our mind like who are you and uh, we won't get fooled again if we had never heard them in CSI. To, to If we never heard that, yeah, to open every CSI Cody, Miami. If we just didn't have Don't Stop Believing" and that's a Sopranos finale, karaoke bars would be a whole lot more enjoyable. <laughs> Don't Stop Believing," the song that never dies. Every, I, I saw what, every like 10 years, it sneaks yeah. it back up on the charts. Yeah, and then, well, because, like, it was on The Sopranos, it was on, like, Writer's Mind, so then they did it on Glee, and then that yes. pumped it up again, and it was like... If I'm not mistaken, it was also, like, featured in the OC or something, wasn't it? I don't remember it being in the OC, and I'm an avid OC-er. Yeah. I... <laughs> <laughs> don't call it that. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> Edit that out, please. <laughs> I can't have people knowing that. That can't be on public record. <laughs> uh... Was a good show. Fair enough. I'll take your word for it, Paul. Life was uh, easier when you know we just had the OC to worry about the things like the OC to worry about. Yeah, yeah. So the film was critically praised. Uh, it was uh, nominated for Best Picture at the Golden Globes, Best Picture Musical or Comedy, and Margaret won the Golden Globe for Best Actress in Musical or Comedy, and she was nominated for Best Actress at the Academy Awards. To this day. And I, I had to look it up because I couldn't believe it. But I really, you know, after thinking over, yeah, it makes sense. To this day, she remains the only actress nominated for a leading role whose only lines of dialogue were sung. Leading role. Because Anne Hathaway what, won for a supporting actress. Yeah. So wow. she's the only leading actress to ever uh, have that claim. Uh, wow. Yes, uh, uh, plenty, plenty of critical praise for this film at the time and in the years following. I don't think anybody summed it up better uh, than Wu-Tang Clan's own Old Dirty Bastard. Quote, Tommy was a great film, a blind deaf kid who could play pinball. What a very great idea. End quote. This quote is in the Wikipedia article for no discernible reason, by the way. That's that's the only reason I plucked it out. I don't say ODB speaks, man. That's true. What do you want? Yeah. He's not wrong. Tommy's for the children. Wu-Tang's for the children. The public seemingly insatiable thirst for all things Tommy uh, continued into the early 90s when the album was adapted to the stage, so starring uh, the great Michael Cerverus as Tommy uh, and using many of the arrangements from the film version. It was nominated for 11 Tony Awards, including wow. Best Musical. It won five. It won for Best Original Score. 
which almost feels like cheating, frankly. Pete Townsend mm. was nominated for best original score, but that's strange. Like, yeah, yeah. And although, I mean, what the most recent winner was Hades Town, which itself is based off a concept album. So I guess it's it's normal. It's not that crazy. It's happened before. It'll happen again. It sounds like a fault in the system, Cody. Yeah, maybe. I think, it we, is. I think we need to dig deep into this. Yeah, I think we need to do a big old expose about yep. uh, teach these people a lesson. Yeah, exactly. Teach these people a lesson that they'll never forget. All right, before we get into the movie, I just have to say this little bit about Oliver Reed, who plays uh, Uncle Frank or the man who becomes the stepfather uh, of Tommy in this movie. A guy you've probably seen. In plenty of movies. I think he's actually in Oliver as the man who goes, More! He's that guy. Uh, his song was cut from that movie, by the way. Uh, same with Jack Nicholson was in a musical with Barbara Streisand. His song was cut from the movie. But the Who said, Nah, you're good enough for us. Go ahead. Even though apparently Pete Townsend was at his wits' end with Oliver Reed, who he <laughs> himself admitted, like, I'm not a singer. I can't. I'm sorry. And said the recording sessions were really tough. And Pete Townsend apparently heard that Jack Nicholson was going to be cast, and he was furious at first. He went, no! No more non-singers. And then it was fine. But yeah, Oliver Reed, 20 years ago, you might remember this. He passed away in the middle of filming uh, the movie that goes on to win the Best Picture Oscar for the year 2000, Gladiator. Yep. Uh, He was nominated in that movie. Still, by the way, the only film where somebody died during production... And they had to take scenes and move them around, and it is seamless. The yeah. only film. No other film who has had to recreate anyone who's who's passed on in the movie does it as well as they do in Gladiator. It's actually bananas. Although there, that part where, uh, you know, he suddenly says, uh, don't ever underestimate a droid. I'm like, wait, where's this coming from? Why is, why is he saying that? That's out of nowhere. Uh, so yeah, it, you're right. It's totally seamless. It's pretty incredible. They finished a lot of the filming with CGI. Do you, Paul, know how he died? Because I remember this. I was too young to know who Oliver Reed was, but I remember this story because the movie was huge. I, I re- don't remember how he died. Yeah, I need a refresher here. I and I'm not sure it was on public record for a while. But just recently, Ridley Scott was part of a uh, variety retrospective of 20 years since the film came out. Uh, By the way, Reed was, yeah, uh, posthumously, I can never say that word right, (laughs) posthumously nominated for Best Supporting Actor at the Academy Awards. Reed was a notorious drinker. Uh, This is according to Ridley Scott, uh, of course, and some eyewitness accounts. He's a notorious drinker, which uh, doesn't Richard Harris also star in Gladiator? Yep. They probably had some epic evenings, the two of them, although I'm not sure if Harris was still. Both uh, of them have uh, pretty epic monologues in Gladiator. Yeah, 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 yeah. Harris has the, uh, your failures as a son reflect on me and my failures as a father. And I'm like, oh, so good. He basically just shit-talked his kid to his face. <laughs> I was like, good lord, how do you not know how, what you're saying? I love me some Richard Harris. This is our second Richard Harris drop of the uh, of the podcast. And honestly, yep. keep them coming. I, I could yeah. use I, I could use a little more Richard Harris in my life. 
yeah, I'm not sure if Richard Harris at this point was quite the notorious drinker that he was, you know, uh, during the days where he and Peter O'Toole would just gallivant around pubs uh, in the UK, <laughs> just just causing so much, wreaking so much havoc and uh, a ton of debauchery. But nonetheless, Oliver Reed, a notorious drinker, but he promised not to let alcohol get in the way of filming. So he made sure to only get lubed up on the weekends. One weekend, while they were filming in the country Malta, Reed entered a local bar, and there were a group of sailors on shore leave inside the bar, and he apparently challenged them to a drinking contest. According to eyewitnesses, Reed drank eight pints of German lager, a dozen shots of rum, half a bottle of whiskey, and a few shots of Hennessy cognac, racking up a bar tab close to 595 U.S. dollars. My word. After beating five much younger Royal Navy sailors at arm wrestling, Reed suddenly collapsed and, while en route to the hospital, passed away at the age of 61. God damn. Part of me is also... I think they kind of kept it hidden because... Um, uh, obviously alcohol addiction is no laughing matter, but holy shit, what a way to go. I just feel like if there is an afterlife, Oliver Reed is, is just downing shots with Ernest Hemingway at some point. Like, yeah. just, <laughs> just bananas. Um, wow. The part where he arm wrestles five much younger men. Incredible. Just keep yeah. them coming. You can hear him in that big brutish voice too. Yeah. I wonder if he started when he was just hammered. If he just started quoting Gladiator to them, like they don't even know. <laughs> you want to know from. this movie I'm working on? Yeah, they don't even they don't even know what it's from. Like as the first guy starts to wane, who's who is losing? He's like, perhaps when enough men have died, you will have your freedom. And he's like, what? What are you talking about? Spaniard, we will go to Rome together and have bloody adventures. Pretty incredible. What a way to go. So we, we, we wish him well. 20 years later, we honor him. And, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty remarkable. So, All right. Now that I've gotten that out of my system, let's talk about the movie. And, boy, oh, boy, is there a lot to get into. Uh, this is a rock opera, as we said. So the music never stops. It just from the get-go, we hit the prologue. It's 1945, and the film kicks off. Uh, showing Tommy's parents, Captain Walker, played by Robert Powell, uh, and Nora, played by Anne Margaret. They are on their honeymoon before he was born, getting it on in the water and the waterfall, you know, good stuff. Uh, his father gets called into action to serve as a bomber pilot and heads off to fight in World War II, literally running through a burning town to get to the train station. This is the part, Paul, where you went, I'm, I'm sure you and I both went, okay, this is this kind of movie, isn't it? As he's running through the town, he sees the yeah. boy on the ground, and then suddenly the all I can describe them as Playboy bunnies with gas masks come running toward the screen. Yeah, this is uh, this is the beginning of ah, yeah, this movie is definitely from nineteen seventy five. Yes, this is... <laughs> it's peak nineteen seventy five for yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say it generally in this movie, there are things I really, really enjoyed, but I think I enjoy them in the way I enjoyed Inherent Vice. Okay. Where I'm like, yeah, that's fair. Where I'm like, where I'm like, there's a lot of banana stuff going on right now, and I don't necessarily know how good it is, but I know I like it. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, good call. 
And I and I just love that the movie is just completely unafraid to just take chances and go completely in your face about it. Like it it gives no shits. It's it's like no, this is what I want. This is what I want to do. Do it. And they're they're not worried about how's this gonna look or how are people gonna see that. Like they don't care. They're just like no, this is the movie we're making. Deal with it. No one focus group this movie. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of crazy shit going on here. I will say it's aesthetically, I I feel like it's pretty pleasing. Uh, oh, yeah. It looks good. It, like, it's a good-looking movie. It's well-directed. It's well-shot. Um, uh, clearly, a guy who's got a very clear vision, a uh, very ambitious vision, and I think he mostly pulls it off, Ken Russell. Also, I will say the music in this movie, I like this soundtrack more than the original album. The original album, because it's only the whose fourth album at that point, and uh, I think it's also years of like doing other productions of it, the London Symphony Orchestra production, where I'm sure they took a lot of bits and pieces of all those and put it together for what they saw to be the best version of this album. It's way more theatrical than the original album. Roger Daltrey's vocals uh, in those first few years are so much more understated. Um, it's not until Who's Next where uh, he really, really comes into his own uh, as a singer. That's with Bob O'Reilly and We Won't Get Fooled Again, where I feel like his his vocals really, really, he, he gets a hold of just how powerful his voice is. Um, and I he sounds better on these songs than I think he does in the original. So uh, I will give him credit for that. I would compare that to, and I know that some some people might consider this sacrilegious, but... For me, I really enjoyed the Metallica S&M album because uh, James Hetfield's voice is so much more mature with age, and I love hearing all those old songs with his voice singing uh, as opposed to yelling. Um, And I know pure Metallica people will be like, how dare you? But hey, don't get me wrong. I love the old Ride the Lightning, and I love all that stuff. Yeah. But I do love hearing him sing those songs. That is such a good. By the way, that's one of my very favorite live recordings. Uh, I believe S and M two is going to be released uh, as a concert film very soon, which yeah. I am definitely uh, into that. Uh, I don't know how it's going to be available, but I'm going to watch it. I can't wait. Yes, we talked about running through the burning village. Nora heads home. Hiding from the explosions uh, in what I don't even know what you would call that. Um, some sort of bomb shelter. I don't know. Her like caged bed. I don't even yeah. know what you would call that. I know it's a, I'm sure it was a thing in World War Two. I just don't know offhand what it's called. Yeah, I think it's because like during the Blitz and all that, they had to have they basically they had to do stuff like that in order yeah. to, you know, live. Yeah. So she's in bed. Uh, and we see Captain Walker, of course, for the, the bomb goes off, the picture falls, it breaks, as we see it sort of fading into Captain Walker uh, being presumably shot down in battle and dying. Uh, Nora later finds out while working in a factory, making bullets, making weapons for the war, that he was uh, killed in action. He is missing, and uh, she, he is presumed dead. So we go to the next song, uh, Captain Walker slash it's a, it's a Boy, as Nora passes out. The next song begins. Uh, we cut to V-Day, which also happens to be the day that Tommy is born. Uh, Nora is filled with joy and agony as she thinks about her husband who gave his life to the war while at the same time trying to enjoy the birth of their son. 
Yeah. It was before this also back when they're doing the uh the when they're showing the bullet factory and all the bombs being built. There there is a moment where I'm like I can only describe it as and I think it's because of all the organ, psychedelic carnival music that's playing. <laughs> it's it's very like it's very carnival y. They were very into the sound at this time, I feel like. <laughs> And uh, in, yeah. in, into Quadrophenia, where you get that as well, during especially a lot of the instrumental parts. So right now, we're almost dealing exclusively with instrumental stuff, except It's a Boy, you get some lyrics from the nurses mm. and the doctor. So uh, now we fast forward six years into the future. Tommy is now standing with his mother at a war memorial uh, as they honor their fallen fa- his fallen father, who is still presumed to be dead. So to try to cheer everyone up, to try to lift their spirits, we go to the next song, Bernie's Holiday Camp, written for this movie. This is such a fun and silly and cheery song, inspired by Tommy's Holiday Camp from the original album. And of course, we hear a rendition of that later on in the movie. And that's where Nora and Tommy uh, meet at the aptly named Bernie's Holiday Camp, uh, where they meet Uncle Frank, played by uh, our good friend Oliver Reed. Uh, he immediately takes a liking to Nora, mostly ignores young Tommy, uh, not not like maliciously, but clearly uh, is more into is more into mom. Uh, he even sings over him and to talk to the boy's mother. Uh, also, again, Oliver Reed, uh, for as much difficulty as he apparently had singing, uh, I think he's absolutely delightful in this scene, and I I I like the way yeah. his the his sort of. Um, He's very brutish, but but also lovable. Like he's just kind of a lovable oaf character, and his voice is sort of perfect for the role. Yeah, I agree. There's certain characters in musicals that can have a a, a less what's the what's the term a less conventional voice, and I think this this is like it fits perfectly. Like you don't need someone to come in here and belt out. You don't need a, a classically trained voice to do this. Yeah, uh, this is definitely in the same style as you mentioned, uh, sort of demented carnival carousel ride, the same sort of aesthetic, uh, very light and silly. What was it just, I, I think also during this time, I feel like every classic rock group had like a few songs, an album, or they liked doing this uh, demented carousel sound. Right? I'm not wrong there. I feel like a lot of, like, obviously for the benefit of Mr. Kite is maybe the most famous example of that from Sgt. Pepper. An acid trip version yeah. of, of carnivals and circuses. I'm assuming, did a lot of these people have bad, did they have bad experiences at circuses as children? Well, I just think it was because in the 50s and then early 60s, carnivals and like state fairs and all that stuff were really, really big. So they probably grew up going to these things. And then now, then when they got older and they started writing music, they were like, this is like something permeated in my brain that I just need to like get out. And add a nice little dose of LSD and look at what you've got yourself. Exactly. Nora is immediately attracted to Uncle Frank. They leave the holiday camp as one big happy family. With uh, Tommy singing about how one day he wants a camp of his own, foreshadowing. Nora tucks in Tommy as he drifts off to sleep. They talk about how happy they'll be now that Uncle Frank is in their life. And that's where we get to the song 1951 as Nora and Frank go off 
to consummate their new relationship, talking about how 51 is going to be their year. At the same time, a mysterious figure enters Tommy's room. Uh, as the man approaches his bed, we get a glimpse of his face, and it is his father, Captain Walker, who is badly burned but still alive, uh, who had returned after all these years. Tommy doesn't get a good look at him as he quickly exits and heads for Nora's room, where he finds Frank and Nora in bed together. Frank smashes the lamp over his head, killing him, and with Tommy watching the entire thing. I believe in the album that he doesn't die. I think he's presumed missing, and that it's actually the father who kills the uh, it's not technically uncle frank it's just a different guy who she's sleeping mm. with uh because she thought he was dead i think he kills him if i'm correct the, the mm. album uh, con- the album plot is very very loose but yeah uh, from from my understanding that's that's actually what happens here yeah that's what tends to happen you tend to condense and characters together and stuff like that yeah. so. especially with an album I, I think also the mother didn't really have any part in it in the album Whereas this, she does play some sort of part in him getting attacked. Mm. Eh, not so much. I mean, she kind of does. But, yeah. But they're both, obviously, uh, when this happens, they see Tommy at the door. And both of them uh, tell him that he didn't see it, he didn't hear it, and he'll say nothing to no one ever in his life. So he takes those instructions very literally as he stares blankly right into our eyes and into the screen as he now appears to the outside world to be blind, deaf, and dumb. Then we go on to the song Amazing Journey. Nora and Frank try to leave a happy life as they take Tommy to an amusement park. And this is just less of a song. This is just Pete Townsend singing the song as they're trying to live their normal life. Uh, yeah, and see. wearing matching clothes, all of them. Yes, wearing matching clothes, as, as happy families are wont to do. You yeah. know, that is the obvious sign of... We are a normal family. We're all wearing the same exact thing. Uh, and, of course, this is all sort of mixed in with some psychedelic imagery that we get our first idea that Tommy now sees the outside world a little bit differently. Uh, he may not be able to talk, to speak, or, 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 or uh, hear, to speak, or to see, but he certainly sees the world uh, in a different way now. Uh, we're then treated to a proper psychedelic trip uh, that... I feel like makes really good sense, really great sense for a, an album released in 1969. But don't you think that by 1975, this sort of psychedelic thing is maybe a bit passe? I don't know. Yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, it's, it is a little, I don't know, maybe a little too over the top. I don't uh, know. Although I, again, it's over the top. I like the part where you see the planes. <laughs> And the pinball is going around, and as it hits each one, it turns into a cross of, like, the war memorial. Like, holy crap. Yeah. It was both really dark and very cool and psychedelic, what you're doing there. Yeah. You can tell a lot of this uh, was described in their, like, production meetings or, you know, artist renderings, like, on the exhale of of taking a massive rip of a fucking joint. Like, yes. <laughs> like they're just like, and then the planes turn into the... <laughs> the memorials, and they're like, "Oh, oh yeah, because yeah, yeah, they kind of look the same, right? It's like yeah. the same shape." Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So, flash forward now. It's Christmas time. Uh, we get the song called "Christmas," and Nora laments how every child except Tommy gets excited about the holiday, 
uh, and knows who Jesus is. Tommy doesn't know what day it is. <laughs> it's great. And Margaret is great in this, by yeah. the way. She is great. And our buddy Oliver Reed's really great in this scene as well. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's just absolutely broken now. Goes just, from, yay, I met this new woman. She's hot. I love her. This is great. Now, what could go wrong to now drinking his sorrows away, just drowning himself in alcohol? Sneering. Sneering at his disappointing family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this also is the first reference to what is really going to be the running theme of the film uh, about, uh, obviously, messiahs, the chosen ones, and obviously how Tommy doesn't understand that concept because he can't hear, speak, uh, or see. And uh, the to- the family now sort of wonders, will he be, will he suffer eternal damnation if he can't do those things? Whereas Tommy, he just wants someone to see him. And to feel him. Yep. Yeah. The That's recurring it. motif that you hear, the see me, feel me. Yeah, because, you know, his family doesn't seem to, like, give him a hug or show him love. Instead, they're just yelling about how he doesn't understand anything. Yeah, exactly. That's all he wants. Like, there's other senses. Like, you touch is, is, still, a, yeah. is still a sense, you know? Yeah, lots of dark brown ale uh, consumed in this movie, by the way. Lots of, it made me want to, it made me realize I haven't had a Newcastle in a long time. And I, I had like a Newcastle phase, I think, when I first started drinking beer, where I tried to be different. I'm like, oh, yeah, I like a nice Newcastle brown ale, which. I love a good pub ale. I it's do too. Good. Yeah. You know what? I, I like it. Maybe, maybe I'll go grab some Newcastle after we're all done with this. Uh, yeah, Uncle Frank, as you mentioned, he's pretty much hopeless at this point. He thinks that uh, Tommy is a is a is a lost cause, but his mother does still believe his son can be saved. Uh, she gives him a nativity scene, hoping that he'll respond positively. But instead, he throws the figurines on the ground as young Tommy continues to stare blankly right back at us. And quick cut: it's Roger Daltrey now. As we go to many years later, uh, an older Tommy he stares back at us as Nora in a final act of desperation, takes her son to a cult church, worshiping Marilyn Monroe and claiming to have the power to cure the blind, deaf, and dumb in the song Eyesight to the Blind. Uh, This features Eric Clapton here, uh, who is the pastor of this church, uh, in a really sweet, like, bluesy, psychedelic song, uh, which itself is a remake of a 1951 blues song originally recorded by Sonny Boy Williamson. Yeah, this is uh, there's a lot going on in this as far as <laughs> yeah, imagery. that's putting uh, it lightly. Well, there is the whole thing of like, what is them worshiping Marilyn Monroe supposed to represent? You know, worshiping fame, worshiping idols, celebrities, and uh, all the people dressed the same, like in service to it. And there's yes, there's just a lot there. Obviously, it's pretty. Um, Hitting you in the face with uh, what the metaphor is, but you know, hey, it's it's a, it's a rock opera. Especially when we go from him not understanding, he's like, he won't know who Jesus is. He won't know why we celebrate Christmas. To how she, many years later, in an de- act of desperation, is like, well, I'm gonna go to this church, even though it's you know literally uh, making a cult icon of a of a celebrity, and and, yeah. and saying that she has healing powers, which is in many ways what Tommy becomes exactly by the end of the movie he is much more 
in the vein. He, he's sort of the combination between a Jesus-like figure uh, and a the, the encapsulation of everything wrong with commercialization and cult status, uh, all the ways it can go wrong. And the communion, they're like drinking like Red Label. Yes. What is it? They're taking what's the pill they're taking? I couldn't even tell. Just some. It does just some blue pills. It doesn't yeah. even. But clearly meant to evoke like celebrity and you know the sex, drugs, rock and roll sort of vibe. Yeah. I'd imagine. Uh, yeah, you're right. They give him red label <laughs> instead of wine, and instead of a communion wafer, they're giving him pills. They're popping pills. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Eric Clapton uh, is in this movie as a favor to Pete Townsend. Uh, because Pete Townsend apparently he, he probably gave him some coke and he did it. Well, actually, quite the opposite. He got him uh, off his addiction for heroin, and so to thank him, oh, okay. uh, he said, "I'll be in your movie and do this song." Really, he was already off. By- oh, yes, he was already off by then. Okay, uh, I think though, I think he got back on cocaine. Oh. Um, I don't know. Actually, I, I don't. You know, I don't. Or did he just write the song? They don't. Uh, she don't lie. You know, cocaine. Thank you. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I got to be honest. Uh, Eric Clapton is not one of those artists of that era who I'm as familiar with. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I liked Cream uh, during that that classic rock phase I had in my younger days. Cream was one that was in uh, circulation for sure. You weren't big on slow hands. No, can't can't say I was. Can't hmm. say I was. No, I don't even hate him, but you know, I don't dislike his music. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Just never uh, never took to it. That's all. By the way, this song has since been covered by B.B. King, Buddy Rich, The Smithereens, and Aerosmith, among many others. Mm-hmm. I would suggest the Eric Clapton B.B. King album for you. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, that's the thing is I feel like every time I do get into this stuff, I'm like, oh, this is good. Like, this is good stuff. I'm into this. So, yeah, as we mentioned, after uh, taking a, a swig of the red label and the psychedelic drugs, perhaps... Uh, the cult of Marilyn does not work on Tommy. Uh, well, Tommy he, breaks the idol. Exactly. He knocks down the statue and breaks it, smashes it to pieces. He's smashing the emptiness of fame right in front of him. Mm, wow. There you go. There it is. There's the message right there, Paul. Right in front Sorry. of us. Sorry. Sorry. Then he smashes it like <laughs> he's smashing fame. <sighs> the facade of, of reality. Yeah. Especially you want to make sure the face cracks because then you're showing the, you know, like the beauty of it is being shattered. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Broken dreams, man. Literally in your face. Yeah. Mother Nora, uh, her strategy works to no avail. It's now Uncle Frank's turn to take a crack at fixing Tommy as we get the song Acid Queen, which if it hasn't occurred already... Here's the moment where you are full on, oh my God, this movie definitely should have been watched uh, while, you know, clearly high or under the influence of some sort of psychedelic drugs. This is a highlight for me. This This is such a good number of this movie. First of all, and again, to to, to give a little background of the scene, it's it's Tina Turner is the, the acid queen. She is also the sort of star of the strip club, the strip tease house that Uncle Frank owns, uh, where he works with uh, his pervy brother, Ernie, who is played, of course, by uh, the Who's drummer, Keith Moon. Uh, and at the encouragement of Uncle Ernie, uh, Frank asks his star performer, the acid queen, 
played by the one and only Tina Turner, uh, to loosen up the young Tommy, who is also working at the front desk of the strip club right now. It's maybe the wildest scene of this insane movie. And the the first thing that dawns on me in this scene is I feel like, I don't know about you, Paul, I'm much more familiar with Tina Turner's 80s output. Um, you know, What's Love Got to Do With It, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Private Dancer, that, stuff, that type of stuff, where she's great, and those songs are great. Dancer for money, do what you want me to do. Those legs don't quit. She is fucking electrifying in this scene. Like, yeah, and this is fantastic. I mean, this is only less than a decade prior to the stuff I'm more familiar with. And yet, as good as she sounds then, I am blown away by how good she sounds here. And I don't know how they had anybody else in mind for this role. See, okay, I, yeah, I think I'm more. I'm looking just at some of her songs right now. I think I'm more actually. This is actually the time period where I'm most into her music because the one the one song I think about with Tina Turner is actually her Proud Mary cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so that's this era. Yeah, that's '71. Okay. So that's a few years before this. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just more familiar. I haven't really delved super deep into the Tina Turner discography really, and I think I need to. Because her in this era is so, she's electrifying. Like I said, she's her voice is so spot on, so good, so effortless. Still I'm, is, baby. Still, still is. Still is. How old's Tina Turner now? She's got to be uh, 80. Uh, 80. Good for her. Let's talk about the scene. What's happening here? Is he taking LSD? Is she having sex with him? Is it both? I think she's having sex with him. And rather than portray that on screen, they have him going into like an Iron Maiden and spinning around. And I'm assuming she's also drugged him. Yeah, I mean, you see all the needles going in and then, you know, yeah. He's clearly on some sort of, he's under the influence of something here. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be kind of like representing how he doesn't know what the hell is happening because, you know, he's deaf, dumb, and blind. Yeah. So he doesn't understand what's going on. But then there's this weird connection with his father in it as well. Yes, where the father is there and then it closes again and then it's a skeleton. And yeah, all things are going on. Yeah, we also he saw the vision of his father holding up just like a white orb, basically. And it's funny, too, because the, the thing I thought about instantly when she puts on that helmet, it looked like she was like a character out of the Road Warrior. So it was a little bit of foreshadowing of what would happen later on in her career. Of course, she would uh, eventually enter the Thunderdome. Darn right. Yeah. Underrated. I feel like when I first started watching the Mad Max movies, everyone was like, oh, yeah, you know, Thunderdome is it's not as good. Yeah, it's it's maybe the weakest. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? This movie kicks ass. It's very campy, but it's fun. I, I love Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah, it's campy. That's why I love it. It's great. Uh, yeah, I was just like befuddled and in awe of this scene. I loved it so much. It's great. Highlight of the movie. And then even like her after it's all done, just like quivering and just like I I love her, just her crazy manic energy in this scene. It's great. Yeah, definitely. So at that point, uh, after the Acid Queen's basically satanic ritual on Tommy, uh, he still isn't right. So Nora and Frank try to get on with their lives uh, as we hear uh, the first three times. Do you think it's all right uh, as they try to find a suitable sitter 
for the boy. First up, it's Tommy's mischievous cousin, Kevin, played by Paul Nicholas, uh, who actually was a star of uh, the stage. He was the very first Jesus in the first West End run of Jesus Christ Superstar. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and Cousin Kevin just merciless, mercilessly harasses his poor cousin Tommy, nearly drowns him in the tub, tosses him down a very steep stairwell, uh, sprays him with a fire hose, and then drives him off by literally ironing him uh, on an ironing board. So uh, good stuff. Then we get the song. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and after another Do You Think It's All Right, we get the song Fiddle About. <laughs> As Cousin Kevin leaves, now with a new cricket bat in hand to torment other helpless victims, the next babysitter is old Uncle Ernie. Of course, that is Keith Moon, the Who's drummer. And once again, Paul, they're at first very appetizing, seeing another nice glass, another pint of Newcastle ale. And then, and Paul, you've been to Europe. Uh, I have not. Is cracking a raw egg into your beer a thing there? I have not seen it. Uh, I don't know. That looks revolting. Uh, I did have to look this up, and lo and behold, there is a phrase. What do you want? An egg in your beer? Which is used when someone wants more of a good thing. Like, is there anything more British than thinking that egg in your beer is too much of a good thing? Hmm. Yeah, it sounds is, uh... disgusting. Uh, that said, definitely going to try it. I have to now. Uh, anyway, Uncle Ernie, total fucking pervert, uh, almost certainly a pedophile uh, in what is the most uncomfortable song in the entire movie. But again, just shows uh, just how helpless uh, Tommy is and how they just don't know what to do uh, about Tommy. Uh, I will say I think they do a great job of dancing around what Uncle Ernie's intents actually are. Uh, I like the he opens up his trench coat with just all these weird doodads uh, and then uh, the briefcase of more doodads. As it goes black and we hear lots of uncomfortable sounds and noises. And uh, then, yeah, the part that has definitely not aged well as uh, Uncle Frank then opens the door. He sees at the foot of the bed Uncle Ernie with Tommy laying there. And he's reading a newspaper that reads gay news. Um, can't say that's aged well. No. Not good. As he lights it on fire with his uh, lighter and... Bye-bye, Uncle Ernie. And once again, uh, at that point, the sitter search is over, and Frank and Nora ask if it's all right that uh, Tommy just continues to stare in that mirror. Uh, and eventually we get the instrumental song Sparks, as eventually Tommy sees his reflection, all dressed in white, walking out the door. So f Tommy follows the said reflection to the local dump as suddenly Tommy seems to be seeing everything and he can he can hear things. He's he's actually following this guy or, or his reflection thinking, oh, my God, it's a miracle. Eventually, though, the reflection disappears and Tommy is left alone in the dark, stumbling through the dump. Eventually, he sees that same shining light uh, that he saw in the vision of his father and his reflection, uh, and it leads him to a pinball machine. Tommy immediately takes a liking to the pinball machine and becomes an expert, racking up a huge score before the police eventually find him and his mother and he might say, retrieve him. Plays a mean pinball. I sure plays a mean pinball. Hey, what if that's going to come up again? 
I like this. I also I, I love the image of the scene where you see all the like different colored lights all reflecting off the different cars that are all stacked up there. Uh, yeah. I, I really like how it's all brought together. Yeah, the use of color in this movie is really good. Yes. The weird yellow bathroom scene, like the blue bedroom, like there's a the, whole lot. The Acid Queen stuff where it's all just bright, red. dark, dark reds. Yeah. Obviously, a scene later on that is one of the most, uh, one of the more iconic scenes from the movie, the all-white room uh, yeah. being doused. Uh, yeah, they do a great job of playing around with that. Uh, the police find, show where they found Tommy, and they show Frank the pinball machine where they found him, and as he mulls things over, he decides to bring it home. And we go from him sort of mulling it over to immediately the song Extra Extra, uh, and Tommy's a pinball star. Can't say this um, This has never been a thing, and it never will be a thing. But you know what, Paul? I'm, just, I'm not going to question the logic of this movie at this point. No, what's the, what's the reason? Right, right. Uh, I mean, can anyone name anybody who's famous for playing pinball? Anyone? Anyone got any names? That, uh, I don't remember his name, but he, oh. uh, that that deaf, dumb, and blind kid—he definitely could oh, play. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> God damn it, Paul! You had me there for a second. I really thought you were going to be like, actually, you know, uh, Theodore. Uh, you know, anyway. At this point, yeah, he he's so famous that his family now can own a huge house. They live in the lap of luxury, and as that's all happening, we see that Tommy is set to play for the pinball championship of the world against none other than the pinball wizard the biggest song from this album the biggest from the movie i believe the original pinball wizard uh was yes i have it right here a major hit off the original 1969 album it reached number 19 on the u.s charts number four in the uk and this version the elton john version reached number seven in the UK charts, it was actually not eligible for the U.S. Billboard charts because it was released as a promotional single. But this song has kind of gotten a second life over the last year as it was featured in Rocket Man. I was very surprised it was featured in Rocket Man, by the way. Yeah, but it was mostly used as like a, a montage almost yeah. in Rocket Man. I mean, nonetheless, that, it's there. Yeah, I think it was kind of to showcase like this is how El big Elton John was like he was being put in a movie where he was singing a song and like true it was also showing the haze around that time period in his life uh, in retrospect it's crazy that he initially didn't want to do this movie yeah. because uh, another one where this movie's perfect for him even like the moment they show him on screen where he's just looking right back at you just like yeah it's me don't act surprised yeah, at this point, uh, Elton John decked out in seven-foot-tall boots. Those Doc Martens are something else in this scene. Uh, apparently, he was very nervous about it. They were they were just so intimidating. Um, and he said, the only way I'm going to feel comfortable is I've I got, like, a piano in front of me. So I've got something to sort of stabilize myself. So the pinball machine he had was originally not going to have a piano. But he asked, I need something. So they retrofitted an old, like, some some electronic, a small, like, electronic piano and put the keys right at the edge of the pinball yeah. machine as his, as what he could control it with, which, that looks so cool. I want that pinball machine with, the, <laughs> the keyboard pinball machine is so cool. It really is. Yeah. And let's just say, outfits for both him and Roger Daltrey in this. Yeah, great. Are just amazing. Great. I would say uh, Roger Daltrey sort of evokes 
the the green jacket look of Uncle Frank at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Uh, and he sort of keeps going with that throughout, that he really gets attached to that green jacket uh, as, a, as a signature look. Uh, so the Who play in the background uh, before they do, you know, their Who-y thing and start smashing their instruments. The, the crowd floods the stage during just a fantastic rendition of this song. Also, those boots I mentioned... I mentioned that I was going to tell you why uh, he was convinced to do this movie. He turns down the role initially. He agrees to take part on the condition that he gets to keep the gigantic boots that he wore in this scene. Agreed. Have fun, Hilton. Could you imagine him at one of his notorious parties after this, probably walking around in those boots? Oh, my God. (laughs) You know he did. Oh, you absolutely. Absolutely no. He just comes out. How's everyone doing? Just in huge boots. Great scene. So at this point, Tommy is the pinball champion. He is now the new pinball wizard. Did you know that I have a pinball machine? Wait, what? Like a full pinball machine? Yeah. What? It doesn't work. It's in the garage. Oh, I, I think need, I've I, seen it. I think I've seen yeah, it. Yeah. I need to get a new motherboard for it. It's a Dracula pinball machine. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, there is like a very there's certainly a a a cult fascination with pinball for sure. Oh, it's yeah. out there. It's, I love me a like, good pinball. Big machine. on collectors markets. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I love a good pinball machine. I do. Uh, I loved. Uh, I want to say back in the days of Nickel City, there was a great Simpsons pinball machine. Mm. Uh, yeah, I love any that's like themed after movies and music and stuff. The rock yeah, and the roll Terminator pinball machine. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I forgot with about the big, that. Big uh, skull. Yeah. Uh, oh, skull. that's a great one. That's a yeah. great one. Yeah. And you know, we all love uh, the classic uh, on your Windows uh, ninety on your Windows XP, the classic pinball machine game. I spent many an hour playing uh, that game. And then I remember going to like uh, bars, like uh, Ground Control in Portland, or there's a there's a really great arcade bar in Chicago I went to uh, with some you know friends of ours, mutual friends that we have, and uh, yeah, uh, that's when I realized that they still make pinball machines because they had like a Lord of the Rings movie themed one, they had like a Matrix themed one, like they they a Pirates of the Caribbean themed one, so they still make these. They, they they're not like they they stopped, like they still have them. Yeah, like you said, I think the collector's market's still really big for it. You know, collectors, they, 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 it does not matter how much a thing is. They are going to find a way to make it work, yeah. to put a Lord of the Rings-themed pinball machine into their house. And uh, God bless them. So the wizard has lost. He's dragged out by his giant oversized boots. And Tommy is the new pinball champ. The crowd lifts him up on their shoulders. Back at home, Nora is watching his son win, but flips the channel. Uh, and we're treated to a random jingle for Rex's Beans. Cody, how topical is this right now? <laughs> that, we are, that we are getting a scene prevalent about beans. So many beans. Who knew that 2020 continues to take some wild plot twists and turns? I mean, look. Did, you, didn't know Goya beans was gonna be the on the on the hit list. Nope. Didn't know that our theme of July. It, no, it wasn't gonna be the growing pandemic as the numbers keep going up. Nope, wasn't gonna be that. Was gonna be. It, it was gonna be beans. What's your opinions yep. on beans? Well, nothing amounts to hill of beans in this town. No. I'm a big bushes guy anyway. Be honest. I mean, Cody. Come on. What? There's nothing wrong with that. 
Nothing wrong with it. Yeah. So Hormel, maybe. Okay, that's not bad. I'll, I'll mess around with the Hormel. I like the bushes because you get the big old piece of bacon in there. Yeah, give me that. That's my favorite game when you play be- when you eat beans. Find the bacon. Just find that bacon. So at this point, his parents are also living it up in the lap of luxury uh, based off of his pinball success. Yeah, which, again, very good work if you can get it. Very fruitful. I recommend yes. all children, uh, if you want to be a YouTube star, get off that train now. It's, it's not where the money's going to be at in 10 years. It's going to be pinball. Pinball. As we all know. That's the future. Yes, this is the scene that we, we, we talked about a little bit. Uh, of course, first we hear the jingle for Rex's Beans, which itself is a bit of a nod to The Who's album, The Who Sell Out, uh, which featured parodies of radio advertisements and actually featured Roger Daltrey on the cover in a tub full of Heinz baked beans. Uh, Nora gets drunk off champagne, praising her lavish new lifestyle, but uh, she feels guilty, a bit guilty, for taking advantage of her son. The TV keeps keeps flipping back to Tommy as we hear that recurring see-me-feel-me motif. She tries and fails to turn the channel numerous times. She drinks more and more, cursing her son's existence, and smashes the bottle into the television. And that's where at first we see the bubbles come out. First you get the bubbles, then you get the beans, (laughs) to paraphrase. (laughs) Oh, man, those beans. And eventually chocolate comes pouring out, and it's her all-white room and her all-white clothing, and it's just a mess, an absolute mess. Uh, This scene took three days to film, apparently. (laughs) Imagine for three straight days knowing you're going to set and having a ton of beans poured on you. Yeah. Well, it must be exhausting. Like, she's flailing around this scene. Like, she's going f- all in. This did not need three days. I'm, I'm just going to say it right now. There is not a chance in hell this needed three days. Are you kidding? This is one day. Get it right. She's just flailing. Like you said, she's just flailing around. Uh, well, I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt, Cody. Well, you know what? All those ti- hey, you know what? We give Jim Cameron shit, but you know what? All those all those days where they had to flood the Titanic, he said this has got to be one take. And you know what? They did it. They did it right. If he can do it, you can make the bean scene work in one day. <laughs> oh well, I guess you can't you can't mess with perfection. And let's be honest, this the bean scene is perfection. Uh, according to DVD commentary by Ken Russell, the baked bean and detergent scenes, uh, which themselves were uh, they were revenge for real-life baked bean and detergent ads that he made early in his career. So this was him sort of poking fun at himself and being like, fuck you, now I can put it in a movie and do whatever I want with it. Uh, Russell also recalled that Anne Margaret's husband did not approve of this scene. He was not a fan of her rolling around in beans and chocolates. Feels very, uh, to go back to a movie we talked about last week, uh, feels very much like Caitlyn Jenner's character in Can't Stop the Music, where, uh, mm. y- you know, very, very buttoned up and uh, didn't want the model to be doing, you know, things models do and, and looking, you know, although, you know, whatever turns you on, turns you on. Uh, if you like a woman rolling around in beans, I'm not going to judge. Mm. Shout out to the shout out to the bean fetishists out there. Shout out to the bean fetishists out there. I don't even know what you'd call it. I'm sure there's a name. There's a name for everything. 
Uh, apparently, she also cut her hand really badly. Uh, this is probably why it took three days. She cut her hand very badly on the glass uh, of the television screen, uh, had to take her to the hospital, get her hand stitched. She was back on set the next day. So at the end of the scene, Frank is also drunk. He stumbles into the room. He finds Nora drunk and crawling around on the floor. She was, of course, hallucinating the entire thing, and he stumbles no. onto the bed and falls asleep. No, really? Beans no. didn't just pour out of my television? I could have sworn they did. Rex's Baked Beans, now available at your local supermarkets. We fast forward, and suddenly they go from completely drunk to, uh, I love how he, he comes into the room, totally chipper, holding a duck he's just killed in his musket. It's just wonderful. How they, they, I, I'm sure it's on purpose. Every outfit he has is like the stereotypical, like, what a poor person becoming rich would do. Yeah. Uh, it's great. The Him having his hunting outfit and then going to the doctor in a top hat and a monocle. I love it. It's absolutely great. I, I, he's really good in this movie. He is. He's so delightful. He is so, so funny. Frank is in a very chipper mood. As, as I said, he's holding the duck that he's just hunted outside. He tells his wife that he's found a doctor that might actually be able to cure Tommy. We go to the song, Go to the Mirror. Uh, that doctor, of course, psychoanalyst, played by none other than Jack Nicholson. By the way, his name is listed as Dr. A. Quaxon. I think I mentioned this already. He appears in, this is the second movie, the second musical movie he's appeared in. First time, though, ever singing in a movie musical. Nicholson was a last-minute replacement. The original pick was Christopher Lee, who dropped out at the last minute to be in the James Bond movie, The Man with the Golden Gun. Mm. Luckily, Nicholson was filming another movie in London at the time. He was able to squeeze the film into his schedule. The total time for filming and recording his music, 18 hours. One day and out of here. We're done. He's great in this scene. He's totally hamming it up. Hearing that almost makes it make sense why he is the way he is in this movie. He's just like, just have fun. Just be goofy as hell. And he's so funny in it. Uh, of course, he gets that, like, looking into the camera scene as we hear the more seductive version of, uh, he, you know, feel me, see me. Uh, he tells Nora and Frank that their tests have shown that he doesn't show any sign of being deaf and dumb or blind, as he uh, sings it. Then they see Tommy looking like basically the uh, the torture scene out of Clockwork Orange. He's got electrical wires all over him. Yep. The doc is hitting on Nora the entire time as... Uh, she sees some sort of alternate life with him, and Frank sort of wakes her up out of it. And uh, the two of them play, pay him an exorbitant amount of money to basically say, hey, look, I got nothing. Your boy's probably fine. I don't really know what's going on. Sorry. Yeah, so it's like a real doctor visit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, then on the drive home, Nora asks her son in desperation in the song, Tommy, Can You Hear Me, if he can hear her as he enjoys. This is the, finally the first time, by the way, I feel like, other than the pinball. Like, again, the whole thing where you hear the motif of, you know, touch, feel me. Uh, He is actually, she's trying to be like, please hear me, hear me. And he's just enjoying the breeze of being in a convertible. Like, you can see he's genuinely enjoying it. They get back home and Nora reaches her breaking point in the song Smash the Mirror, asking Tommy why he continues to stare in that mirror and threatens to smash it with with the bottle before pushing him into it. And he falls through the mirror into the water 
and it essentially wakes him up in the song I'm Free. That first line, too, from Roger Daltrey, where he just screams out, I'm free! It's so good. Uh, and again, it's so different from the original version. He's just completely unleashed now uh, in this version. He sounds great. Well, he had to smash his, like, preconceived notion and how he saw himself, man. That's what? why the mirror breaks. Wait. Yeah. Now, see, we're going to break the mirror? It's almost like he's breaking away from himself and yeah. how, he, how society views him, you know? Uh, he's swimming in the water, he's free, and so he just bolts and runs uh, runs all through the forest and the fields into the sea. Uh, eventually, he winds up uh, by some rocks by the ocean. Uh, Nora is desperately trying to find her son, and, and she finds him laying on the rocks uh, in the song Mother and Son, which bleeds into Miracle Cure uh, and asking if he can hear her. And that's when he wakes up finally and sees all of his life flash before his eyes, all of the traumatic experiences of his life uh, as he is reborn, essentially. Uh, his mother tells him about who he is, that he's a pinball champion of the world. People love you. You've brought fame and fortune to our family. But Tommy now seems to have other things in mind. After his miraculous recovery, he believes he has a higher calling beyond pinball. Uh, and he throws all of his mother's jewelry, including f ripping off her fake nails. <laughs> Which, uh, come on, leave the nails for mom. Yeah. You know, let mom have nice things. Throws them all into the ocean as he sets off on his new path of enlightenment. This is how Waco started, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is where... <laughs> no, yeah, this is very... It gets very culty very fast. Yeah. This is before Waco, so... The news of Tommy's miracle spreads throughout the world as he becomes a cult-like religious figure to his devoted fans, especially a young repressed girl named Sally Simpson. Um, we get a song about her life, how her dad is a preacher, and she throws her dad's autobiography into the fire. She don't give a shit about dad. She just wants to meet Tommy. Uh, and she goes to one of Tommy's... I mean, what is this? Is it a concert? Is it a sermon? Like, he's not even playing he, pinball at this point. Yeah, I think this is... It's like a rally? Yeah, I guess it is. I guess it is. Uh, I, I guess yeah, I'll, I think, I'll I like think a it. sermon's kind of a... Yeah, it's a sermon. People have played music before uh, it, and then he comes out. Yeah, I think this is... Uh, we're, we're supposed to inf infer here that this is not the first time he's done this. So I think this is supposed to be like, he started speaking to a couple people, then a few more, then a few more. Like, you know, how, how, good, how a good cult starts. And uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, all great cults. Yes, absolutely. And we yeah. get early our first sense of the beginning of Tommy's new movement. Uh, as young Sally is pushed to the front of the crowd, uh, pushed around, hoping to get an up-close look at Tommy before being pushed away by Frank uh, at the stage. She gets a big gash on her face and is carried off by security, but uh, doesn't register to Tommy at all as the crowd is all pumping him up and and he's totally into it as Sally gets taken off and carried away by what I assume is either security or medical staff, but it looks more like security. Uh, don't worry about old Sally, though. She gets married to a guitar-playing miniature version of Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. And they lived happily ever after with their little Frankenstein children. She got seduced by the monster that is rock and roll, man. <sighs> So, yeah, it's going to be, like, seduced by rock and roll, you know, because that's what the man wants you to think. She basically became a deadhead. That's what happened. Yeah, good call. 
Although even when she's married and has a child, she's you know pushing the baby carriage. All she can really think of is Tommy. Mm-hmm. Still pretty obsessed with her him by the end. Tommy's notoriety continues to grow and even spreads to those who have never had the pleasure of knowing or meeting Tommy. Yes, his mere presence seems to bring peace and forgiveness to everyone in the song Sensation. Most notably, a fight between biker gangs nearly resorts to murder. And then here comes Tommy on his hang glider. Love it. Love it. It's so good. Oh, my God. Yes, he flies in on the hang glider and he brings instant calm and peace to everyone. Uh, also, yes, Tommy is an obvious Christ-like figure. Uh, and Paul, I'm not as well versed in uh, religion and uh, the teachings of Jesus uh, maybe as you are. I got to imagine, though, that JC was just a little more modest than a man swooping in from the sky, calling himself a sensation and telling everyone that, yes, I overwhelm you. Yeah, uh, a little bit. At least ideally, a little bit. Ideally? <laughs> oh, no. You know, who knows? Uh, yeah, this is, you know... I love the song, not, by the way. Oh, yeah. Not every messiah is going to get it right, you know? It's a, it's a learning curve. <laughs> Fair enough. Nonetheless, the cult of Tommy continues to grow uh, as he also flies over a casino. He converts the uh, su- the... Soon to be sinners at the casino to join him. Also, the dancing of the biker games and the casino uh, goers is uh, very um, what I can only describe as what would in the future be that sort of uh, what's that like goth dance that they do? You know, what I'm talking about they go like do do do. It's almost like some electronic goth dance. Come on, now oh, you were the one who showed this yeah, to yeah. me. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what it's called, but there's a name for it. But it feels yeah. like this is the origins of that. It predates it for sure. But it is. A, it does showcase a lot of like how cults start out. It's like everyone's just kind of eating together and having a good time, and everything's fine. Hey, let's all just help each other out, man. Everything's great, and everyone's like, "This is cool, this is wonderful." And then all of a sudden, one day, the leader's like, "And also, I'm gonna have sex with every woman here," and everyone's like, "What? What?" And then they just kind of let it happen. <laughs> and that and that's how every cult ever has happened <laughs> it's just it's always the same it's always they start off with like hey like we're all just gonna like chip in together and like share you know and then everyone's like this sounds like a great idea why wouldn't we do this help your fellow man exactly exactly wow well, radical ideas yeah but also like eventually i'm gonna have sex with all the women here and the men other men are not so like that's what's going to happen. <laughs> that's and that's the part they skip over in this movie. Yeah. Uh, now, he doesn't get to that part, but guaranteed would, that's where it was going to go. I'd like to think that Tommy had a, a better heart than that. And I think they kind of allude to maybe that at the end where. Oh, they all do it first, Cody. Oh, yeah, true. <laughs> Fair enough. At the end where you see like all of the crowds of new followers who are pretty fed up with Tommy are trying to be like, what's going on? Like, teach us something. Uh, but the first people he's with are the people who uh, are, were like him, you know. Mm-hmm. The, and so I like to think he still has a good heart. But uh, yeah, you're right. It all it all always descends to uh, I need to have uh, f- 58 children with all of these women. Yeah, so that's, that's uh, where it always goes to. So where this is, you know, and that's just me having fun with the whole idea of how bad cults are. But. This whole thing is like he's giving in eventually to the the fame of being a messiah. Yes, like he he 
in the beginning rejects fame from being the pinball wizard and all that, and only to embrace it again in a completely different way. There's a whole lot here about materialism and stuff like that. Unfortunately, this after the 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 song, what was the song called? Uh, the sen- sensation. Sensation. After this is when the movie kind of hits a lull. Uh, I feel like the le- the end of this movie isn't as strong. The last third of this movie is not as strong as the the first two thirds. Uh, I so, agree with that. So much like many musicals. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. So I think this is where it starts to get a little bit more haphazard in delivery. It starts to get like, okay, the songs are all right, but we're not really we're not hitting the highs we were hitting earlier in this movie. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think part of it also has to do with the fact that a lot of these songs are taken out of order from the album. Like, I'm Free is actually a lot further. It's the like the fourth to last song on the album. So it's a lot further along. Yeah, there's 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 a lot of uh, of different changes to the to the order of the song so i think that's part of it is they were trying to be like we have to make a story that makes sense with a different song structure and yeah unfortunately like you said uh, not as strong but after sensation uh, tommy welcomes his new followers to uh, a new sort of convent i guess uh, as he wears the very similar green jacket that we saw uncle frank wearing at his holiday camp near the beginning of the movie in the song welcome um, of course, this is now a much more modest-looking Nora and Frank and even Tommy as they're welcoming the new guests, uh, which seems to be a never-ending flood of people looking to join. And so- Tommy tells his stepfather that they have to build more room for his eager, eager followers. And to get even more followers, uh, we get the sort of bridge song TV studio as Nora is recording a message to the masses to get even more people to join Tommy's movement. And we see the map that Uncle Frank has that has all of the pinpoints of where they are building their movement around the world. After that, we get a full-on look at the commercialization of Tommy's new movement in the song Tommy's Holiday Camp. And, uh, well, I guess they for- forgave old Uncle Ernie. Or uh, Ernie's riding those coattails because, uh, hey, he gets to sing this happy little ditty. Yep. Which, if the Bernie's Holiday Camp was a sort of demented carousel sound, this one even more so. Yeah. Uh, where now it's gotten full on uh, just uh, completely greed has driven this movement. They're buying Tommy T-shirts, Tommy records, uh, pinball gear, all sorts of things because they feel like they have to uh, as more converts arrive. Uh, and, And yeah, as you see people buying more merchandise, you see the followers are becoming more disgruntled, more angry and more feeling like what is this movement actually become? And that's yeah. where things really reach a breaking point in the song. We're not going to take it. Um, and we cut to Tommy working with a group of people that, as I mentioned, he was once like, many of them differently abled. Uh, meanwhile, discontent is brewing among his new converts. They're disgusted with the commercialization of the movement. And they go to Tommy and they ask, teach us something. We need, what's, what's going on? They follow through with Tommy's plan for enlightenment initially. As he says, you need to cover your eyes, your ears, and your mouth, and you embrace the power of pinball. And that's where they all reach their breaking point, and they just start destroying all of the pinball machines, denouncing Tommy as he stands atop the top of the pinball mountain, only his silhouette visible with his arms spread out in a not-so-subtle reference. Uh, A little on the nose there, don't you think? Yes. (laughs) Uh, The mob of people stab Frank and smash a bottle over his mother's head. 
killing both of them. Tommy is defeated. He crawls out from the pinball mountain in tatters. He finds his mother and his stepfather's body among the broken pinball machines. As we hear, of course, the recurring motif, see me, feel me. Uh, he puts their hands together as he lays his mother's body down. And he walks away from it all with the mach pinball machines all ablaze. Uh, and he in the holiday camp up in flames. Uh, and this is where we get just an awesome song. Uh, I love this, listening to you. Mm. Uh, it's such a good end. I will say that. As yeah. as disjointed, as, as kind of shaky this end part feels, I love the ending of this movie. The list, This song, him going into the water, again, sort of jumping into the water, sort of cleansing himself once again and reaching the mountaintop, that very same mountaintop that his mother and father were at on their honeymoon to start off the movie. And as he reaches that mountaintop and lets out the final notes of the movie, uh, he reaches up just his silhouette visible to the rising sun above him as the film ends. Tommy, a, a, like you said, a, a not so subtle, a very drug-induced uh, look at commercialization of religion, of cults, and uh, all in all, some fantastic music, and all in all, extremely, extremely 70s. And uh, this is now the part where I say, I think Quadrophenia is better, and it's a more coherent uh, plot just based on the album, and why it has not been made into a movie musical yet, I have no idea. It makes no sense. There is a movie about, there is a Quadrophenia movie based off the album starring Sting, but it's not a musical movie. It makes no sense. Well, isn't Quadrophenia a movie? No, that's what I'm saying. It is a movie, yeah. but it's not a musical ah. movie. Whereas Tommy is like, it's the album and all the music from the album. Okay. Quadrophenia doesn't do that. It's just the story of Quadrophenia. It's got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, though. I'm sure it's good. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure it's great, but come on. All right, Paul. So what we've been doing for this uh this month is taking a look at the music that was popular the week that this movie came out last week we looked at the charts for what was it uh, june of the end of june in 1980 at the top 10 billboard hot 100 yes and what what weekend did this movie come out it came out on march 19th 1975 so go. i looked at the week of march 15th 1975 are you doing your casey Kasem right now <laughs> to see what was top of the charts and don't tell me about your fucking dead dog <laughs> don't need a goddamn dog death dedication <laughs> i love the way he puts that so last uh, week I quizzed Paul, and so this week we're turning the tables. Paul's going to quiz me about yeah, the top yeah. ten hits of March 19th, you said, of 1975? March 15th, 1975 Close is at the start of the week. All right. And then 19th is when that comes out. So when the movie came out, these were perfect the top ten on the Hot 100 charts All right. of Billboard. All right. <laughs> All right. Starting at number ten, Cody, this band... It's an American band, and we're an American band. Yes, but the, oh no, the not. song is one of my least favorite uh, song things to do, which is you take a well-known saying and you title that your song and make it the hook. Ooh, you know, in in the in the wave of uh, like uh, Katy Perry does this a lot. Where she like will take just a very familiar saying and just right, right. And turn an entire hook out of it for no discernible reason. Right. Uh, so this is one of these. Uh, there's actually 
a Beatles guitar lick referenced in the song and then subsequently used in the song. Huh? Yes. They mention John, Paul, George, and Ringo, and then the guitar plays a snippet of I Feel Fine by the Beatles. Oh, God. Yeah. It's uh, almost the original uh, highly praised uh, Kid Rock song, you know. <laughs> oh. The, uh, the Werewolves of London slash Sweet Home Alabama. Right. I was about to say, it's not Sweet Home Alabama. No. After saying uh, that. Yeah, it's not that. God, I, uh, I don't know. I, I don't really have a guess. Okay, the uh, so the band is called the band is Sugarloaf. Oh geez, I wouldn't have got that. Oh God. Um, and what do you say? What what do you say? Maybe you're auditioning for something. What does the producer say to you, Cody? Maybe you wanna break a leg. You, I don't no. Know. Okay. I'll just give it to you. It's don't call us. We'll call oh, you. Oh geez, I don't think I know that song. Yeah, there's a moment where they say John Paul George and Ringo, or they say sounds like John Paul and George. They don't even mention Ringo, dicks. Oh, and no, uh, fuck. Ringo. And hey, I, we mentioned Ringo. He's in, he of yeah. course in the London Symphony Orchestra version of this movie. And there's also a riff from Stevie Wonder's Superstition. There's a whole. It's a whole song about ho- Hollywood and like fame and basically, don't call us, man. We'll call. Sounds you. like lazy songwriting, if you ask me. Yeah, it's it's not it's not wonderful. It's it's mostly just a cynical look at the music industry. Yeah, all right. Uh, I, apparently, it's based on their real life experience with CBS Records. So okay, all right, fair yeah. enough. All right, Sugarloaf, number ten. All right, number nine. A song from the band, but not this song, is featured in a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. It's got to be uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> oh, maybe it's fine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> This was, uh, oh, oh, this band holds the record for having the most Billboard Hot 100 top 40 hits without a number one single of any band in U.S. chart history. Okay, then that's something. That is something. They are from Birmingham, England. A uh, little hint. Do, would I know the, the song's pretty famous, I'd imagine? Yes. Okay. Oh, God. Now, now I'm now I am a little thrown off. But it's not the first song you'll think of when you think no, of this no, band. no, no, no. See, at first I was gonna say 10 CC, but that's not it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I got I got nothing. Yeah, All right, got another uh, hand for me. The band. I'll just give you the band okay. and see if you can get the song. Okay. The band is Electric Light Orchestra, oh, aka God. ELO. Okay. Duh. And it's not the song everyone thinks of, which is it's not Mister Blue, Blue Sky. Sky. Is it Evil Woman? Is it? No. It is a ballad. Um, oh, jeez. Ballad? Okay, give it to me. I don't know it. Can't get it out of my head. Oh, wow. Okay. That, the next... That's crazy. That is a crazy stat about ELO, by the way. Yeah, right? I was like, a little shocked by that. Uh, the next band, part of their band name is, in the, ti- is the title of the song. Two, I don't think you're going to get this. <laughs> Thanks. Three. Uh, it is an American funk disco band, and also I don't know how often this is. I'd love to see a stat for this. How many times these actually show up on a top ten? But it is an entirely instrumental song. Oh jeez, I'm not gonna know it. I don't know. Cool. Yeah, gang. the song is "Express" by BT Express. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah, good for them. It's a great all, tune. An all I instrumental tune on it's the an, top ten. Yeah, it's awesome. Number seven on the Billboard charts the same week. That the Who's Tommy came out. 
This band is named after a country. Okay. They were formed in England, but they are themselves are not English. And they're probably not even named after the country that they're from. I don't know. I'm not okay. going to give that away. <laughs> oh, well, they're not Europe. And they're not Asia because those are continents. Very good. They're not Chicago because Chicago's a city. Yes. And so is Boston. Thank you for naming things that aren't countries. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, man. Um, um, it's not a band called Germany, is there? Or France or Spain or Finland. I would also say that it is not the full title of a country. It is merely part of it. All right. Now you've... Okay. Again, I don't think there's a band called Newfoundland. I don't know. I have no idea. Well, Cody, the band's called America. Oh, God. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the song, it is a ballad uh, off of an EP of the same title. It was written as an optimistic response to the Beatles song, Eleanor Rigby. Hmm. I don't know the America discography, clearly, so... You might have to give these this one. Well, think of the song Eleanor Rigby. Yeah. Uh-huh. And oh, the title the title of the song is in the lyrics of Eleanor Rigby. Uh, I don't know, Lonely People. Yep. Hey, it's Lonely People. Got it's one. Lonely People. Hot damn. Yeah, Dan Peake, uh, one of the writers, considered Eleanor Rigby an overwhelming picture of the masses of lost humanity drowning in gray oblivion, which is such a well written line. That's just fair. To say to describe something. It's very fair. And recall. Recalled being lacerated on first hearing the lyrics of its chorus, which run all the lonely people. Where do they all come? Where do they all come from? Where do they all belong? All very fair points. Lacerated by it. Damn. Uh, he wrote it uh, f- a few weeks into his marriage with his wife Catherine. He said, "I always felt like a melancholy, lonely, lonely person, and now upon getting married, I felt like I'd won." Aww. Well, isn't that nice? Yep. And uh, the lyrics of "Lonely People" advise all the lonely people: don't give up until you drink from the silver cup. And if you do, just listen to Eleanor Rigby, I guess. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. Number six on the Hot 100 Billboard chart. <laughs> I'm just going to start devolving into number <laughs> six. Um, this is a band from Chicago. Not Chicago? Not Chicago. This is a band from Chicago. It is a power ballad. This band had many hit songs. Uh, had eight songs that hit the top ten on the Billboard Hot 100. A band from Chicago? Any ideas? Uh, uh, not really. Other than the band Chicago, as I mentioned. Okay. Uh, the lead singer has uh, a very has an alliterative name. His first and last name, same letter, same first letter. I got nothing. All right. I thought my so 70s music knowledge was better than this. Apparently not. The bassist and the drummer. Are twins. <laughs> I, <laughs> how is that going to help me? Um, uh-huh. uh, I don't know. It is a one named band. Okay. There are not multiple multiple uh, names in the band. Okay. Uh, consisting of only four letters. The song and the band only have four letters for this particular entry. Well, it's not ABBA. <laughs> Only four-letter band I could think of off the top of my head. Um, I got nothing, Paul. I really got nothing. They've sold over 54 million records worldwide. Uh, the lead singer is Dennis DeYoung, and the band is Styx. Ah. 
And it was, so wait, Sticks, nineteen seventy five. Uh, is it Come Sail Away? No. Is it? Uh, uh, oh God! Is it? Um, he wrote the song for his wife. Oh, oh! It's um. God damn it! Is it? Oh, it's Lady. Yep. Lady. Yeah. Okay. Whew! I got the song at least. Yep. All right. Number five. Uh, this song is very well known because of its because of a uh, spectacular high note by the singer. She uh, is believed to have, I believe, uh, one second. Ah, she has a five octave color col- coloratura soprano range. Five octaves. The band happened to be Heart. No. Uh, is it? Uh... This is an American singer, not a band. Oh, it's just a singer. It's Barbara Streisand. No. Um, this song was certified gold in the U.S. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I don't know who it is. The album in which this was uh, produced was produced by Stevie Wonder. However, Wonder was signed to Motown Records, so in order to avoid contract conflicts, he was credited under, under the pseudonym El Toro Negro, Spanish for the Black Bull. Huh. As Stevie Wonder's astrological sign is a Taurus. Ah, I see, I see, I see. Yeah, I don't know. I got You stumped me again. The song, Cody, is called Loving You. Uh, it's easy because yeah, you're beautiful. beautiful. Do, la, la, do, 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 do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... Ah, yeah. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is an F sharp sixth note. Yeah, it's apparently. nuts. Yeah. Uh, the artist is Minnie Ripperton. Ah, yeah. Okay. Never sure. This singer has been in a musical. The song is the title track of the album. Would the singer happen it, to be in this musical? No. Okay. This is this became her second consecutive number one hit on the ho- Billboard Hot 100. The Diana Ross? No, it also topped the very prestigious Adult Contemporary Singles Chart. <laughs> is it Bette Midler? No. Is it Barbra Streisand again? No. Uh, 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 Received a Grammy nomination for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. It was her fourth straight single to be certified gold. Uh, what what would the musical be given in any way? But it failed to chart altogether in the United Kingdom, the song. Wow. That's pretty crazy. Um, if I told you the musical, it would give it away immediately. Well, <laughs> for the sake of time, maybe. <laughs> Just uh, give it to me. She, she, was, she was in a little movie called Grease. Oh, it's Olivia Newton-John. Yeah. The song is a very long title. I'm not going to be able to say it. But... The song is Have You Never Been Mellow. That's not that long. It's a little wordy for it because- <laughs> Have you ever been mellow? Okay. Have you never been mellow? Why even start? Why even word it that way? What's, right. the, what's the reason for this syntax? Yeah, anyway, point being, yeah, crazy. It, it charted in the UK, the US. Or, I mean, charted in the US like over and over, but it was even a crossover hit. It landed on right. country, adult, contemporary, all this crazy. This stuff. is a few years before Greece too, so I'm a little surprised. Yeah. That, all right. Number three, a remake of this song was used in a musical. Uh, probably Moulin Rouge or something. Do you want to just throw out a guess? Uh, I'm trying. What to think the song of, is? I'm trying to think of songs of Moulin Rouge. Oh, um, is it is this Elton John? No. Ah, I was gonna say Don't Go Breaking My Heart or something. Uh, it's an American girl group. 
Oh, uh, oh, it's was big uh, with it's, 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 Is it Lady Marmalade? Yes, it is. All by right, LaBelle. yeah, Lady Marmalade by LaBelle, known for its suggestive chorus line. Number two, also high musical reference. As this was, I don't, I don't remember if this is actually used in the musical. I don't believe so. But the artist is is uh, used in a musical, and is it Cher? No, uh, the song actually was rejected by the band that this man was a member of because Motown Records refused to so- refused to release it. So they sold the lead singer the song. And he released it on his own. Is it Frankie Valley? It is. Is it Can't Take My Eyes Off of You? No. Ah! But it does have to do with eyes. My Eyes Adore You? Yep. All right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it was written for the Four Seasons in 1974, but the Motown label balked at the idea of releasing it, sold it to Frankie Valley for four grand. After, after rejections by Capital and Atlantic, Valley succeeded in getting the record released on private stock records. And, but he only wanted Valley's name on the label. Uh, so yeah, it was fools, f- fools yeah. for turning that down. All right, yeah, and also yeah, can't take my eyes off of you. It must have been early seventies, late sixties, I think. So yeah, Pretty. all right, number, number one. one, Cody. Number one, yeah, you better watch. This band is near and dear and close to our hearts. This band is near and dear. They are near. Uh, oh, they're like a Bay Area local band? Very much so. Okay. Are they a San Jose band? They are a San Jose band. Are they war? Band. No. Ah! Oh, it's the Doobie Brothers. Damn right it is. Uh, would that be... Oh, God. Well, I don't know what Doobie Brothers song it would be, honestly. I'm just going to take the win and say I got Doobie Brothers at least. What's the song? All right. Uh, the song is Black Water. Really? Yeah. Number one. Blackwater. Yeah, I guess I'm surprised it went number one. I didn't realize. I think uh, the most well-known part of that song is, I I just want to get the lyrics right, so I'm going to look them up real quick, is uh, near the end of the song, because it's just all a cappella. Come and take me by the hand. Oh, pretty mama. Don't go to take me by the hand. You know that part. Uh, I'm surprised that that's the number one, honestly. Number one song. Wow. All right. Well, there you go. March of 1975, the Doobie Brothers making San Jose proud, our hometown of San Jose proud. So it's very crazy that not a single star from this movie, they're all huge stars at the time. Yeah. I mean, they all had big hits prior to this or after Yeah, but like the week of, it's just, no. Uh, Just missing out on the top 10, you did have uh, Joe Cocker. Uh, You are so beautiful. Oh, nice. Uh, Best of My Love by the Eagles, Ringo Starr, the No-No song. Ah, one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. Jackson 5. Elvis Presley, My Boy. Yeah, uh, there's a a lot of stuff there. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, you know what? Not very much like uh, Can't Stop the Music. I'd say there's a lot here that uh, it feels very There's a lot of variance in this top There is. That's the 70s, though. Yeah. That's why it's an awesome time for music, because there's so much variety. It's just like, oh, Frankie Valli plus Doobie Brothers, Styx, but then also like BT Express with a funk like instrumental song. Yeah. 
Then that was the and top that's chair. The all right, on that dog <laughs> death dedication. <laughs> no dog death dedications here. Uh, we'll wrap things up. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, go to our uh, Twitter page at Movie Musical Pod. You can follow us on Facebook at Movie Musical Pod. Of course, subscribe to us, review us, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Cody Pasby. I'm at the Paul Ponte on Twitter. You can find me all the time. Also, check out paulponte.com for my music, photography, and podcast projects. All right. I, I, I was waiting for, again, I was waiting for the dog death dedication, but it's not coming. I nope. Clearly nope. Not. No goddamn dog death dedication. <laughs> Until next time, I'm Cody Pasby. And I'm Paul Ponte. And we will see you down the yellow brick road. <laughs>